we are in the we are at the at the start of season two of our study in the book of Acts. Right, we are in we are, we are launching out uh, um, of our second season now. Let's turn our attention to the Word of God. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd like you to turn to your Bibles, Acts chapter 13. If you would like a hard copy Bible, we've got Bibles at the back at our library. You can just go, borrow a copy, use it during the service and return it after the service. We have Bibles in English, in bilingual English BM, bilingual English and Mandarin and Pure BM as well, okay, which is what I like to use whenever I am listening to the English. It just gives me uh, uh, more context. We are in Acts chapter 13, right? Uh, 13 verses 14 onwards. I want to show you the map of what's going on at this stage, right? Um, the apostles leave Antioch in Syria, right? They leave Antioch in Syria. They travel south to the island of uh, Cyprus and last week we were with them first at Salamis and then most of the action happening at Paphos and that's where they encountered uh, the magician Bar Jesus you know um, Elimas is his other name and then when they're done here they travel back up to the mainland of what is today modern day Turkey or Turkey right and from Perga, they end up in Antioch in Pisidia. There are two Antiochs, by the way. The Antioch that keeps sending out uh, um, apostles, the Antioch that is known for missions. If you meet um, a missions group or a ministry or a church that refers to it as Antioch, they are talking about Syrian Antioch. Okay, This is the famous Antioch. But today we are in the Less famous Antioch, Pisidian Antioch. Okay, the Antioch in Pisidia, where let's highlight that, right? That's where we are today. Where quite, um, quite a long passage. If you just scroll through your chapter thirteen, you realize that wow, panjang lah, so long. What's going on here, right? I'll show you what's going on here. In fact, I'm going to put it to, for you on the screen. But those of you who are here long enough, you know I don't expect you to read this. Okay, all right. Acts chapter 13 looks like this. Visually, it looks like this. It, it can be grouped or rather it is structured like three different movements. Okay, it's a little bit like a classical piece, right? There are three movements. The first one, okay, I'm just going to show it to you. The first movement, uh, it's a bit shorter. The middle movement is long, okay? And then the ending one is short again, all right? The first movement, verses 16 to 25, um, is when Paul and Barnabas arrive in Pisidian Antioch, right? They go into the synagogues as they always do, and then the synagogue rulers, they actually, they're not like church, right? it's actually quite chaotic one, you know? Uh, let me tell you what it looks like. In their synagogues, it would be as if, if I've got visitors coming from, you know, UK or, or, or Cincinnati or wherever, right? I'll, I'll go up to them and say, oh, you are brothers from the US, you know. Um, come, uh, share with us a word. And I'll just hand them the mic and they take over the service that day, right? And then they can just pretty much share whatever they want that day, right? And so, the leaders of the synagogues, uh, they don't quite kind of like hold their, their, their synagogue teaching um, with the same kind of way 
that we do in church uh, uh, these days. I think it would be hard-pressed to imagine a, a world where we just you know, hand a platform for teaching and preaching to just anyone who would come in. But that's what they used to do. But of course, I'm quite sure they don't just hand it to anyone, okay? Paul and Barnabas were already well-known, right? Remember when they ended up in, in, in Cyprus, right? When they ended up in Cyprus, um, Sergius Paulus had already heard of them. He wanted to, to, to learn from them. And so if you are a guest speaker, you just pop up, they were likely to give you uh, um, uh, the pulpit. And so what happens is they take the pulpit and Paul starts preaching and telling the story of their people. Their people now being the Jewish people, right? He tells the story starting from them prospering in Egypt. And now, I just want to cast your mind back to the stoning of Stephen. How many of you remember the stoning of Stephen? Right? Right? Five, five of you remember the stoning of Stephen. <laughs> the rest of you were stoned like Stephen. Right? Now, at the stoning of Stephen, Stephen did something very similar. He went back and he started uh, preaching, telling the very long, longer than this, a very long story of the people of Israel. He retells their national story. But every time you see one of these guys retelling their national story, you have to be a little sharper and pick out the different angle. When Stephen t retold their story, he told it from the angle of and all you Jews never could see that you were enemies of what God was doing, right? And so he started with when Moses was in Egypt, those guys fight against him. He had to run away. Moses lead them out to Canaan, fight with him. Then, and then on and on and on. Every time, wherever God's people were trying to do something of God, then Stephen was trying to show them that y'all were his, their enemies the whole way. And that ended with, you know, all you stiff-necked guys. And then after that, kind of blasala, right? He was stoned to death, right? And so here, here in Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are retelling the story, but from a different angle. The angle they are telling is that God is their ruler. And God has always been their ruler. All their victories have always come from God. And God has been desiring from the very start to raise up for them godly rule. And so he begins by saying that from the start in Egypt, you prospered into a huge nation. You see the angling? He could have said, you all were slaves. We were slaves in Egypt. He doesn't. He starts by saying, the Canaan land, we entered the land of, uh, of Cana, right? And God caused us to overthrow all the nations that are seven nations, all overthrown, you know. Why? By whose hand? By God's hand. And then we occupied it. And then God gave us judges all the way up to Samuel. And then God gave, and you asked for a king. So God gave Right? You see, the angle that, that Paul is telling at is God's activity, God's rule, God's leadership, and God's initiative in steering 
this people, his people, to a place of good leadership, governance, and the rule of God over them through the leaders. And after Saul, God gave you King David. And this was the David, the son, uh, the, 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 the one through whom the son, the Messiah, would come. And then a bunch of other things he says, leading, saying that from David comes Jesus, Messiah. Right? The Christ is going to come from this David. And so royal, so royal is his mention of David that he cannot not herald him with John the Baptist. And so Paul also includes that John the Baptist came and it was John the Baptist who led the way and heralded the way for a king to come. And therefore, this Jesus has now come. End of the first movement. Right? He has essentially taken his audience through their national history. They know this history, but they are getting a fresh take on it with a particular angle. And now Paul and Barnabas move into the entire middle movement of their sermon, okay? and he starts to form arguments. Okay? Not argument like Gado arguments, okay? but he's starting to make a point. He's starting to cite Old Testament scripture. The first one he cites is Psalm 2, right? And he says that this Jesus who came, lived, died on a cross, and he repeats it. He says that he died even though it was a false trial, even though there was no reason for him to die. He died unjustly, went to the tomb, and was raised back to eternal life. Raised back, and he makes the point that resurrection is super important. And he says that because he was raised back to life, he has fulfilled Psalm 2. What is the part in Psalm 2? Psalm 2 says, You are my son, today I have become your father. And this should be quite instructive for us because we always know that Jesus Christ, the person, the second person of the Trinity, is co-eternal with the Father. In other words, the Father has always had a son. And their love for one another has always been transpired through the power of the Holy Spirit. So for all of eternity, it's always been Father with the Son with the Holy Spirit, right? And Father, Son, Holy Spirit is co-eternal. There's no beginning. If there is a beginning, if one of them was, you know, birthed, let's say Father predated the Son and the Son was birthed, then the Son is not eternal, right? And then you have huge theological problems there. Father, Son, Holy Spirit are co-eternal forever and ever, has always been. And so what does Psalm 2 mean? Today I've be you, have, you are my Son, today I've become your Father. Is there a today where God became Father God, and before that, He was just distant, cold, you know, Allah Maha Esa, you know, is that, uh, um, is that what it is, right? No law, no law. So what does Psalm 2 actually mean, right? I can't go into the whole of Psalm 2, but I want to tease you so that you can go back and read uh, uh, um, up more about it. Psalm 2 is really trying to say, in the light of Acts 13, huh? Psalm 2, in the light of Acts 13, is trying to say that today, you have really fulfilled the call of a son. You have fully lived out the passage, the rite of passage of my son is 
not just to be co-eternal forever and ever in perfect state, but to come, be born, be born humbly, to live justly, righteously, to die in injustice, to die as an act of travesty against all that is right and good, and then to be raised up to life again. And when the Son, the co-eternal Son, goes through that passage of humanity, just, righteous humanity, suffering injustice and unrighteousness, and He is raised back to life, Something sunness, some sunness is attained. Maybe, the, maybe there's no English word uh, to properly uh, uh, capture this, but something happened. I'm going to show you a text from Philippians 2 later to, to re-establish this. But this is one of the things that Paul and Barnabas are attacking, right? They are, they, are, they, are, they are challenging their Jewish listeners. And then they say, don't you remember Psalm 16? Psalm 16 says, The Holy One will not see corruption. And therefore, this Jesus who went to the tomb, and bef before the full third day, He had already been raised to life, right? On the morning of the third day, He was already raised to life. His body never saw corruption. This Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. This Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 16. This Jesus is now also the fulfillment of Habakkuk 1.5. I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe. And that does not just refer to resurrection of Jesus Christ. That refers not just to resurrection of Jesus, but to the resurrection of people outside of the Jewish family. And so God is now saying to the Jewish family there, that I'm going to do something in your days that if you heard, you would not believe it. You would scoff at it. You would mock it. You would say, Right? You will say, no way it can ever happen like this. Right? And it's going to boggle and baffle them. And indeed, within chapter 13, you're going to see them scoff and baffle and not be able to believe that it could happen. End of the second movement. Second movement is tough. He is tough. He's really wrestling with stuff. And at the end of the second movement, they say their thanks they leave the synagogue and then some Jews, majority are probably in shock and awe, right? Like, oh my gosh, what just hit us? Some of them cling on to Paul and Barnabas and walk with them all the way to their car, right? Okay? No cars. And they follow them and say, please come back next Sabbath. Please come back. We need to hear more of this. And so the third movement is the next Sabbath. On the next Sabbath, they arrive, Paul and Barnabas arrive, but half of the city, more, in fact, the actual text. By the way, I show you all the full text in very small font, right? It's for you all to fact-check me one, okay? It's so that you all can see on the slide itself that Fergus is not putting rubbish, okay? But if you actually read, it's there, okay? It's just too, too long to read the entire text. But what's happening here is that almost the whole city Almost the whole city gathered to hear what Paul and Barnabas had to say. In other words, what Paul and Barnabas did the previous Sabbath, they had gone quite viral in this city. Everyone was wanting to hear what they had to say. And so, when they came, 
and everyone was gathered, I'm quite sure, though the text does not say explicitly that they are not in the confines of the synagogue. Because if half of the city is there, they are definitely in a much more open space, maybe somewhere between at the perimeter of the synagogue or something like that. Now, what happens is Paul and Barnabas start preaching again. But this time, they are no longer telling the Jewish story to the Jews. They are telling the Jewish family, we're moving on from you. Since you are so stubborn, so stiff-necked, you have had so many chances to believe in this Messiah, and you still haven't, okay? But I don't think he's talking to those who are, who, who are fervent, right? He's talking to the rest of the crowd. We are moving on from you. And then, clearly, half, more, almost the whole city means that there are a lot of non-Jewish people there. And he now turns to the Gentile crowd and he says, we are moving over to you. And then he starts telling them that today, I want you to know that the family of God includes you. And these guys celebrate. And those guys seethe. They seethe in jealousy and envy and anger. And so, that, my friends, is the whole chapter 13, right? Now, I would normally, if you're new here with us, you know, uh, wherever possible, I try to preach clearer, three-point sermons, you know, you get to take home, like, clear learning points. Only, of course, when the text lends itself naturally to a three-point sermon. When the text doesn't, <laughs> just can't, right? And so today, it's just not going to be as linear or as dot point um, as I normally would. I'm going to tell stories the way Paul and Barnabas told their stories. Okay, now, I want to back up because if you have never heard the gospel, the God story, if you have, if you are, you've heard it, in little chunks here and there in Sunday school you learn about you know uh, 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 the animals in the ark and then suddenly there's David suddenly there's the cross and then suddenly there's Samson and then suddenly you're taking in biblical history in little non-linear chunks and you've never heard it as one continuous story how many of you you grew up like that right None of you are. You're so, you're, yeah, yeah, we got, we got two, right? Um, uh, mo most, I can tell you, most, um, uh, yeah, I'm going to be careful what I say here. I, I'm going to say what I'm going to say by telling you a story. I once had a young adult, this was in the mid-2000s, I had a young adult, um, and we were looking for um, Moses, right? Uh, um, one of the parts of the narrative that included Moses. And we were there with our Bibles. And there's a kid who, there's a young adult who grew up in church. And he was flipping back and forth at 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, you know, and then Romans. And he was flipping back, you know, uh, to, to 2 Corinthians, back to 1 Corinthians. And he was like, Where is Moses? And I was like, Dude, dude, Moses, wait, slow, slow, slow. And I was like, <laughs> Moses is here Exodus, you know, uh, Leviticus And so it occurred to me that Maybe if we take in our biblical literacy Our Bible knowledge From little um, non-linear chunks, you know one, one hero here, one story there One children's play here, you know um, Suddenly there's Jonah, you know And, and there is no unifying story, it can be very disjointed, okay? And you never really see the grand narrative of God. So today, I want to show you again, afresh, the grand narrative of God. God 
and it and it relates to what's happening in Acts 13. God finds a man called Adam, called Abraham. Sorry, he finds a man called Abraham, and he makes a promise with him. He cuts covenant. So covenant is not just a promise because a promise can be one directional, right? Kids, I promise y'all, y'all will get to you know eat X Y Z, you know, if y'all tidy up the floor, right? And then it's one directional lah. They fulfill, I fulfill that, right? Um, but he cuts. God cuts covenant with Abraham such that I will be your God. Okay, you will be my people and we will fulfill the terms of our relationship like that. The closest covenant we have to what Abraham had with God is A, our own faith with God, B, marriage. Right? Marriage is a form of covenant where you, you come into a union and you remain in faithful uh, 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 commitment to one another. There is fidelity in marriage. There is fidelity in God's relationship with us and us with Him. And so, He puts, I put a C in here, right? He puts a promise. He puts a covenant inside Abraham. And He cuts a deal, right? And He also cuts some animals into two, right? And by cutting the animals into two as part of the covenant, He's saying that the one, uh, uh, may the one who breaks covenant, may this be uh, 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 as the one who breaks covenant. And then He you know, parts the animals and it's like, okay, you know, if whoever breaks the covenant becomes like these animals, you know? Um, and that's important, right? Because Abraham eventually has children. He has quite many actually, 12, right? And his 12 sons start to have their own families and become a nation, right? They become a 12 tribes and then from 12 tribes, they become a big nation. The problem is that eventually they start breaking covenant and they keep on, keep on, keep on breaking covenant. But the thing is that God has been, had told them that if they were to keep covenant, if they were to keep their fidelity to God, if they would remain faithful to God, if they retain their allegiance to God, then God would make them the centerpiece of His plans for the whole world. And what it means then is that because they become the centerpiece, then the rest of the world will be drawn to them. And Isaiah 49 says exactly that. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob, that's Israel, that's God's Jewish people. In other words, it is too small a vision, a thing, a project, so that you jaga only what the Jewish people need. Not big enough. Not good enough. God has a bigger plan for the Jewish people. Don't just jaga tepi kain sendiri, right? Don't just look after your own interests. He says, I have made you a light for the Gentiles. And so the call upon God's people in Israel is that they keep covenant, keep fidelity to God, and because of that, all the nations of the world will be drawn to this unique, splendorous, bright, lighthouse beacon nation that would set the path towards goodness, righteous, and God, and the salvation through Yahweh. And of course, when they all come, they will all become be connected and drawn to this nation called Israel and they would become one family. They would become one united family. 
But this clearly does not happen. This has not happened. Until today, I'm going to stop there. I'm going to stop there. Okay, we'll talk about that later. I'm going to stop there, right? Um, this has not happened and we are still longing for this to happen. But I will say it differently. This is in the process of happening. God's people are coming together, rallying themselves around each other and the nations are coming together, being drawn by something which is the beacon and the lighthouse leading many people out of dangerous waters into light and life. We'll get to that in a moment. In this middle section, you all remember this, right? It was, do you remember this part? Your Holy One will not see corruption. You are my son. Today I've become your Father, right? And I said to you just now that there is something about Jesus being born into human form. There's something about Jesus going through the passageway of being raised up in righteousness and then dying a horrific death. Philippians 2 expresses this. The only person who has seen this slide before is Victor because I recently shared this when I was in Suramban. Right? I'm going to read this out to you. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he did not, the co-eternal, second person of the Trinity, whom we call Son, okay? But Son is just an approximate name for it. He is the second person of the Trinity. Since forever, this second person of the Trinity did not count equality with the first person of the Trinity, a privilege to flaunt and flex or something to leverage on. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. So second person of the Trinity empties himself completely, takes the form of a servant, is born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, now found in human form, he humbled himself even further. Into what? Humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Hey, if you're co-eternal, you've never known death, or not? For that which is for one who is co-eternal, eternal, to put yourself into the shell of a human who is going to die. And that's what he does, obedient to the point of death, even a death on a cross. In other words, this is a scandalous death. Huh? This is the death not of righteous people, this is a death of murderers, rapists, people who hurt children. This is the, the death for people who embezzle an entire nation. I can go on. Therefore, God has highly exalted. Now, the Greek word for highly exalted is hooper exalted, right? Hyper exalted. There is, this is probably the closer English translation because to be highly exalted in English is just quite limited. It could assume that you could be even more highly uh, 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 exalted. There is no exaltation higher than hyper exalted. This, this second person of Trinity, having gone through that, is now hyper-exalted to the right hand of the Father, bestowed on Him the name above every name. Now, this happens after uh, 
So I want you to know this, huh? There is something about Jesus' ministry, life, death, unjust death, tomb, resurrection from the tomb. Something happens out of it. And after that, he gets the name, which is above every other name. Now you might ask, Pastor, does this mean that before that, he never had the name which is above every other name? You go read this yourself and then go wrestle with it your whole life until you go back to Jesus and then you ask him, you know, for yourself because I, I, I'm, I'm teaching Philippians too, right? I don't know beyond this. But I know that the text says something which we should pay attention to. He does, according to this, get the name which is above every other name upon the therefore of his death and resurrection. That I know. So that at this new name, right, this name of Jesus, he's always had the name of Jesus, but upon the authority vested in this name now, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now, I'm going to represent this in the form of a chart, like a stock market chart, okay? It actually looks like this, okay? Philippians 2 looks like this. He did not count equality with God as something to be leveraged on, right? Instead, he emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, born in human form, obedient to the point of death, and not just death, obedient to the point of death on a cross. Therefore. And church, you're good Bible students. Every time you see a therefore, you need to know what the therefore is. Right? You need to know what the therefore is there for. The therefore means that all of these things don't happen unless this happens. Okay? This is English grammar, right? I am hungry, therefore I eat chakwetiao. Right? <laughs> therefore, that means that if I am not hungry, nobody eats chakwetiao. I don't eat chakwetiao. I am hungry, therefore, the eating of the chakwetiao is, is, is necessitated by the hungriness, the hunger. All of this, all of this, therefore, he was hyper-exalted. All of this, therefore, he is exalted to having the name which is above every name. He is exalted to the point that today... Uh, at the name of Jesus, every knee bows now, okay? Name above every name. Every knee bows, every tongue confesses Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father in heaven. And now, we're going to swing back to chapter Acts 13. But you see why His resurrection is death, unjust death, death on the cross, tomb, resurrection is so important. It's so important to our entire faith. Because if you don't have the resurrection, there is no this. And you can walk into a room with a demonized girl and you have no authority. You have no authority. If Jesus was not resurrected, Paul says elsewhere, and I think 1 Corinthians, he says that if Jesus was not resurrected, we're all finished. We would be the most foolish people. Why? Because we are hoping on the eternity, we are hoping on the power and the authority of one who has not been raised to life. He's still in the tomb. But he is not still in the tomb. He is utterly resurrected. He is totally, totally raised back to life. And so, we go back to Acts 13. He says, people, the people of Jerusalem and their rulers did 
not recognize Jesus. And we sang that song just now. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Right? Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. See you what? See you high and lift. That's hyper-exalting. Shining in the light of your glory. Pour out your power and love as we sing holy, holy, holy. You see, church, we need to pray that in this season of 40 days of fasting and praying, God opens our eyes. Because in Psalm 119, it is said, Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. And you know what that means, right? If you have to pray and say, God, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law, it means that there is a way to look at God's Word and it's not beautiful, it's boring. There is a way for the Word of God to be seen as boring. And therefore, that's why we must pray that God opens our eyes so that we see His, uh, His Word and we see Him not as boring, but as beautiful. Not as dull, but as saviour. And so it says here, the people of Jerusalem, in other words, these are the Jewish rulers of the synagogues and all that, they did not recognise Jesus. Yet in condemning Him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Now this is a very fascinating passage. I want to explain what verse 27 really means. What verse 27 means is not simply that the Jewish rulers, you read your Gospel of Matthew, your Gospel of Luke, you know, they're always fighting with Jesus. Mark and John will have the same story. They're always fighting with Jesus. Now, Paul is saying, it's not just that they read the Scriptures and they didn't understand. That's only one part of their problem. Yes, they read their Scriptures, they didn't understand. But the bigger part of their problem is, in not understanding, they are spiritually blind. In being spiritually blind, they cannot re recognize Jesus. And in not being able to recognize Jesus, they start persecuting Him and persecuting Him to the point of death and in so doing, fulfill the very scriptures that they read every Sunday and don't understand. Does that make sense? So they become a self-fulfilling prophecy. They are fulfilling, the, the scriptures say that there's going to be a bunch of people who are going to be, be spiritually so blind that when the Messiah comes, they will destroy this Messiah and think that they did the whole world a service. And here they are, not only not understanding that, but because of they are those very people, they are still spiritually blind. They see this Jesus preaching this gospel. They cannot tahan him. And then they actually start persecuting him until they literally fulfill the text that they've been teaching all their lives. And that is shocking and shockingly frightening because what it means is if we are not spiritually seeing, then what are you seeing? And what kind of death will your blindness lead you to? 
We look into our Gospels and we see the end of it. We look into the rest of Acts. I think we see how scary it is to be so spiritually blinded that you start opposing the very things that God is trying to do. Acts 13 continues to say this, What God promised our ancestors, He has fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so, we know this. I said this earlier. He lives, He dies on the cross, He is raised back to life. And in so doing, He fulfills the covenant. That sea that I showed you just now. Abraham with the sea inside, right? The nation with the sea inside. He fulfills the covenant that God made with His people. And now Jesus, the covenant becomes a cross. Now Jesus is no longer just Israel's Messiah. He is also the Saviour of the whole world. And now, only now can this visual be fulfilled. Because now, through Jesus, He's going to bring the nations together. He's going to bring diverse groups together. He's going to bring people who normally would not be friends together. And Galatians 3, he says, So in Christ Jesus, you, Sungai Bulo Church, and the church in Galatia, and all the rest of the church, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither, no more, categories like Jews here, Greeks there, Gentiles there, Jews here. There is no more such thing as men here with more access, women there in the outer courts, which was what it was like in the Jewish temple. There is no more privileged people, slaves there, right? Slave masters here, right? These categories are torn down. And yesterday, when we gathered here in the morning to pray, Zerlaw led us to pray into Ephesians chapter 2, where the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down so that Galatians 3 can be fulfilled, so that all the nations can come together and we are no longer different colours. We all become one family under God. If you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed. Guys, I'm preaching. If I'm doing like a two-hour teaching session, I would tell, I'll show you Romans 9. I'll show you various places. John 8, Romans 9. All the people who thought they were children of Abraham and thought they had a rightful place already pre-secured in heaven, they thought that their passageway to eternal life with Yahweh was already secured. And therefore now they become the gatekeepers. And they say, we're going to gatekeep real tight. And all these weird-looking people, different-looking people, people whom we consider immoral and loose, we don't let them come in. And they stand at the door and they keep children away. They keep tax collectors away. They keep prostitutes away. They keep broken people away. And they say, we've got our holy huddle in there. Y'all are unholy. Y'all stay out. Right? And Jesus says, no. No. That usher team, not our usher team, says Jesus. Not my kingdom's usher team. 
You don't get keep the doors of the kingdom this way. In fact, you think you are Abraham's seed? You are not Abraham's seed. Wow. Do you know just how offensive that is? That's worse than calling us pendatang. It's worse. It's worse than calling us pendatang. Because there was a generation where we actually did datang. Our forefathers actually did datang. And of course, there are other people's forefathers also datang at some point, right? No, listen. This is far worse. This is questioning their very identity. Their entire identity is built on this one thing. They are Abraham's children. And the sea inside Abraham, that covenant, is in them. And they believe that that's been in them until today. Jesus says to them, while he was alive, now Paul says to them, if you belong in Christ, you are Abraham's seed. And earlier you see in John chapter 8, where, they, where the Pharisees are having a sharp argument with Jesus. And they say, we don't know who your father is, paternity slur, right? Because Mary you know, immaculate conception, everything. We don't know who your father is. We know who our father is. Father is Abraham. And Jesus says, your father is not Abraham. Your father is Satan. Because you act like Satan. And you do the works of Satan. Wow. You know, church... This nation is not technically the same entity as the Israel that was formed in 1949. I hope you all know that. It's not the same nation. And I believe, genuinely believe, that God has a plan, a unique plan, as the first recipients of His works, His ways, His laws, His power, that God has a unique destiny for the Jewish people. You can't read Romans 9, 10, 11, 12 without, without getting that. 9, 10, 11, without getting that. So God does have a unique plan for the Jewish people. And I want to stop there because we are not the Jewish people. Most of us, anyway, I don't think that there are any Jews here. We are the Gentile church. And I want us to know this. Your allegiance is to Jesus Christ. Your allegiance is not to politics. Your allegiance is not to Jewish politics, Arabic politics, Palestinian politics. Your allegiance is not to that. I'm sorry, your allegiance is not to that. Your allegiance is to Jesus Christ. Your allegiance is to what God is doing through His church and through His kingdom. That's our allegiance. So it breaks my heart when I see Christians funding projects happening in Israel that's pushing Palestinian Christians out of their homes and making them stateless and making them homeless and making them subject to all kinds of war crimes. It breaks my heart that Christians are funding attacks on other Christians because our allegiance is on national political entities. I want to repeat I believe that God has a unique plan and it will be a good plan for the salvation of the Jewish people. 
I genuinely believe that and I will pray and I do pray towards the Jewish people being saved. But the nation that exists today, that 1949 nation of Israel, is not the boundary lines of the seed of Abraham. You want to know what is the seed of Abraham? If you belong in Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. This is the Bible. I can't find this. I had no thoughts on this until I read this. And having read this now, I have thoughts on it. That's Abraham's seed. You want to know what's the parameter of Abraham's seed? That's the parameter of Abraham's seed. Not biological, genetic handing down of Bangsa Yahudi. That's not Abraham's seed. Because Jesus himself spoke to ethnic Jews and said, your father is not Abraham. Your father is Satan. And then he now says to people who are not part of that genealogy, and he says, you're children of Abraham. And so I will find joy and we will all find joy when we come into worship together with the Jews who believe. Because they will represent these guys who at one point were given the charge to be a beacon and a lighthouse to the whole world. And then we will join in as the rest of the family, as Romans 9 says, we are grafted in to become part of the same family. And church, we will find joy. We will find joy in worshipping God and placing our allegiance to Him and to bend our knee and bow before Him. And the name on our lips will not be the name of any earthly kingdom. The name on our lips will be King Jesus Christ and whoever He has admitted into His kingdom. Because Jesus stands at the door and Jesus Himself is the gatekeeper. He is so Himself the gatekeeper, He came all the way to say, I am the door of the sheep. Those whom I let in, I let in. And so, we are reaching a point in Paul's sermon in Acts 13 that massive crowds start to gather the next Sabbath and the Gentiles are starting to hear this. And not, they are not just hearing this. They are starting to witness something because from Abraham to 12 tribes, to biblical Israel, there's always been people in this larger family who fight back against the work of God. And because they fight back against the work of God, the true biblical seed of Abraham has never really been that big. Because the people who throughout history have fought against the ways of God were never truly seed of Abraham. Are you following me? You want to stone me? This is the seed of Abraham. Everyone else fighting against what God is doing has never been the seed of Abraham. And because of that, all the nations have always stood off. All the nations have always stood away and said, if you're like that, I don't want your God. They've always stood in the distance and say, if you're like that, I will fight you to the death. Because there is nothing glorious about all of this 
and the faithful remnant remains inside, praying, praying for Messiah to come, longing for Messiah to come. People like the prophet Simeon in Luke chapter 2, praying for so long. You all remember? And the prophetess, I believe her name is Anna, in, also in Luke chapter 2, right? Jewish people who have been waiting so long. And now, now in Acts 13, finally, Paul and Barnabas says, we're moving on from all of you. You've had generations to come into the kingdom to prove yourself seed of Abraham. Now, the gospel is going all out over you. I'm going to leapfrog you. I'm going to bypass you. I'm going to go to the nations because you were supposed, you were supposed to receive it. Then you were supposed to draw the nations. The nations are going to be drawn in. Jesus himself said, there are sheep outside of this pen, John chapter 10, that I must bring into this fold as well. He will. And if he can't use his inner circle, he will go straight to the outer circle and he will go all the way out there. That's why it says here, since you reject it and do not consider yourself worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. And earlier he said, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. You know, my friends, because of this, for the rest of the book of Acts, you are going to see fighting, 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 fighting. Every time the gospel tries to go out, I say every time with a little bit of hyperbole, every time the gospel tries to go out, the Jewish people fight it and fight it. And that's why when you see the map of all the missionary journeys, you will also see pushback in many of the cities. Now I'm asking you, are we the recipients of the gospel? Are we the pushbackers against the gospel? No, right? We are not. We never want to be that. What is then the gospel? The gospel is that Jesus Christ has come to forgive everyone of their sins. He has come to offer life in the age to come. A beautiful, eternal, perfect, full of bursting with life kind of life. That's why the expression is, is Zoe life, right? It's that, it's that next age which we are all going to step into. And we are all part of this. Right in the middle here of Acts chapter 13, when he looks at the Gentile crowd, he says that, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honoured the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed to eternal life that day, all of them came into belief. And then Paul ends by saying this, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And so today, church, I know many of you come from Christian backgrounds. Maybe a handful of you don't. And if you come from a Christian background, today, I hope that you see Jesus afresh. I hope you see Him with new eyes. I hope you see that 
he is not dull but beautiful. I hope that you see that he forgives the sins of sinners, including the sinner who just sinned against you. And for you to hold a grudge is not the way of Christ. I hope you see that when Jesus forgives your sins, he also says, Forgive one another. If you do not forgive one another, neither do I forgive you. He says that in Matthew chapter 6 when he teaches them how to pray. I hope you see that you are seed of Abraham if you act according to the promise. I hope you know that we all broke covenant not just once but many times and as we broke covenant the price of breaking covenant is those animals parted whoever breaks covenant this happened to them and while we were on our way to having to fulfill the punishment if you can call it punishment the consequence of covenant breaking, Jesus came and stood in our path and said, I will be broken for you. I will stand in the way of you and your death. And I forgive you of your covenant breaking. But someone has to die like that because the promise which cannot be broken, the covenant which cannot be broken says that if you do not keep covenant, this will happen to you. Jesus takes our place, goes to the cross and is killed. A sacrifice in our place. And if you've always known this because you grew up in a Christian home, I want you in this season to hear it afresh and to know all over again the power not just of His sacrifice which forgave us of our sins and therefore we too have to forgive those who sin against us but also of the power of the resurrection that today we do not live defeated lives but today we live a life full of resurrected power and it's in that place where our knees are bent to one King alone, King Jesus Christ alone. And because we love Jesus, we will bring, we will be that Israel that God had called us to. And if you love the 1949 Israel with a particularly strong love, then my prayer is that you will be a light to them. Yes, my prayer is that you will also be a light to them. It's not scandalous. It's not preposterous. He has called the seed of Abraham to be a light to those who are in darkness. That's how it breaks down. And I know that some of you, God has placed in your heart a burden for other nations. Let you, let God be, make you the light to those nations. Some of you have a particular burden for your home people and you are living in Malaysia as foreigners and I want you to be a light to your nation and today the world is so globalized we have the, all the nations at our doorstep not very different from Pisidian Antioch and so church 
Where does it land? It lands here. That Jesus Christ has offered you forgiveness of sins once and for all so that all the wrong things you've done, all the broken things you've done, all your regrets, whether you've hurt people, harmed people, whether you've sabotaged your own life, whether you have been a poor parent, you have neglected your children, or you have done worse, whether you have cheated people and you regret it, or whether you have been unfaithful to your spouse, unfaithful with money, whatever your sins, or whether you were the recipient of bad treatment, Someone had an affair on you. Someone cheated you of money. Someone broke covenant with you. Someone was rude to you and you harbored anger. You harbored bitterness. You harbored vengeance. And at some point, all those things took over you to the point that you could not tell who was the monster between the both of you. And I want you to know Jesus offers you forgiveness and a new lease of life. He cleanses you from all of that hurt. He cleanses you from all of that sin. He cleanses you from all of that gunk. And then He makes you new again by giving you resurrected life. He lifts you out of death and He literally gives you a new resurrected life. But you must receive Him, you see. Because if you are not a part of Him, you are going to be apart from Him. And so church, my call to you on this Sunday and for the rest of the 40 days and for the rest of your days, choose to be a part of Jesus. And it's not just salvation choice. It is everyday walking with Jesus choice. It is everyday aligning the way of your living so that you are constantly living in fidelity to God. You're not just making a one-day decision to be faithful to God. It's not just that you got a ring on it and then you can act however you like, like you're a bachelor. You spend the rest of your days in fidelity to God. And that's the decision I'm calling you to on a Sunday and every Sunday. And it might sound dull after a while. I will never tire of calling you, exhorting you towards faithfulness to God. And you should never tire of exhorting yourself and each other towards the same. So if there's any one of you, you do not actually know Christ. You kind of know Christ. You kind of have an idea. But today you're seeing Him afresh and you say, I want to know Christ more. I want to make a decision, not just for today, not just for my whole life, but for every day of my whole life. I want to make a decision for Him, an active decision to be faithful to Jesus. I want to pray with every one of you. And then later, if this is your first time praying it, I want you to just tell your friend that it's your first time praying it. Let's pray right now. Maybe I could have Pastor Ramesh on the guitar. Father, we thank you, Lord God, for today's word in Acts chapter 13. Lord Jesus, I've heard your word being explained today, being shown. I've seen something today. I want to make a decision to walk right before you. 
I want to make a decision to be faithful to you until the very end. Today, I want to make a decision to forgive those who have wronged me. And Lord, there are so many, there are really so many. But today, I say, I forgive them. And I want you to say it in the second person right now as if you were saying it to them. And I want you to take a moment and bring that person to your mind if you can. And when you are ready, I want you to say, I forgive you. I forgive you. Husband, I forgive you. Wife, I forgive you. Mom and dad, I forgive you. Business partner from the past, I forgive you. People who wronged me, I forgive you. Pastor from previous church, I forgive you. Leader from previous church, I forgive you. People from previous or even current church, I forgive you. Father, I've never called you Father or it's been a long time since I called you Father and really meant it. In my dying to myself so that I can say I forgive you, I pray Lord that a new kind of sonness, daughterness that leads out into death and out into resurrection becomes active in my life. And so in the same way, I go to the tomb with Jesus. I come out of the tomb into resurrected life with Jesus. Having forgiven and been forgiven, I say to you now, I decide for you forever. I choose you today and for the rest of my days. Church, why don't we rise? Why don't we rise? I just hold your hands open before you. As Pastor Ramesh leads us to worship, I want you to really call on God's name. I don't want this to be karaoke. I don't want this to be sing song. Every line of the song, I want you to mean it. And if you don't mean it, don't sing it yet. Just sit in it until you can mean it, then sing it. And then it's worship, then it's really worship. So Pastor Ramesh, why don't you lead us, lead us into worship. Oh Father God, I just pray, Father God, that you give us new eyes on this morning, Lord God. New eyes to see that Jesus Christ is beautiful. That Jesus Christ is, is, the, is, is that which I've wanted my whole life. Such that every time I knock on all kinds of other doors, I'm really searching for Jesus. I'm really searching for fulfillment in Christ, fulfillment in love, fulfillment in, in, in forever. So Lord Jesus, I thank you. And if I've knocked on wrong doors, trying to search for something I had no name for, today I discovered the name which is above 
all the names of all those other doors and I thought I was searching for them but I discovered today Lord I can only find true love true receiving true acceptance true forgiveness true setting free true liberty true love true life I can only find it behind the door marked Jesus Christ and today I want to come in I want to walk through the door marked Jesus Christ and I thank you that there are no other gatekeepers there other than you yourself and I thank you Lord today you are my good shepherd you lead me into safe pastures And I thank you that you are the door I come in through you. And I thank you, Lord God. And I pray, Lord, every morning when I wake up, I will pass through that door and I will enter into you, Lord God, and I will come into a place of power and meaning and love and acceptance. And Lord Jesus, this is my prayer for every single one of us. So may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord turn His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn and lift up His countenance toward you and give you His shalom. And all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. All of God's people say, Turn to one another and say, All of God's people say, Amen.